Second Kings chapter 10. Second Kings chapter 10. By my count, this is our <clears throat> 20th study in the life and times, really, of Elisha. And this is part two. We began chapter 10 last week. We noted um, in these last two chapters, we saw the anointing of Jehu, and then he went to fulfill God's calling to kill Joram, to kill Ahaziah, to kill Jezebel, to kill the 70 sons of Ahab, to kill Ahaziah's relatives, to kill all the house of Ahab at Jezreel, at Samaria, and finally at the end of the chapter here, we come to his killing of the servants of Baal and decimating the temple of Baal. And thus our title, Jehu the Avenger of God, part four. It's been sobering and again I trust we see the character of our God, his justice, his wrath uh, toward idolatry, even his covenant people for these things. Remember that Ahab's household was being punished because he stole the land of, of who? Whose land did he steal with his wife's help? Naboth. Naboth. Naboth's vineyard in Jezreel. Also, Ahab's house was destroyed because of the idolatry that had crept in. And the this section culminates with the destruction of Baal's temple and his followers, his worshippers, his priests, all falling upon really the house of Ahab and broader the idolaters within Israel. And remember, God's word in this passage is descriptive. It's not prescribing us to go and do the same. Some passages do that. They tell us what to do. This is describing what happened. We can learn things to do, but we're not called to go and take up the sword and kill the idolaters within the professing people of God. But there are many lessons which we can learn. With that brief introduction, let's read 2 Kings 10. We'll pick it up at verse 17 to the end. When he, that is Jehu, came to Samaria, remember that's the capital of the northern kingdom, Israel, he came to Samaria and he killed all who remained to Ahab in Samaria until he had destroyed him. He had destroyed Ahab, him. It's an interesting description, all of the people of Ahab, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. He had told Elijah he was going to do this, and now he accomplished it. Verse 18. Then Jehu gathered all the people and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little, Jehu will serve him much. Now, summon all the prophets of Baal, all his worshippers and all his priests, Let no one be missing, for I have a great sacrifice for Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu did it in cunning, so that he might destroy the worshipers of Baal. And Jehu said, Sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal. And they proclaimed it. Then Jehu sent throughout Israel, and all the worshippers of Baal came, so that there was not a man left who did not come. And when they went into the house of Baal, the house of Baal was filled from one end to the other. It was packed. Verse 22. 
he said to the one who was in charge of the wardrobe, bring out the garments for all the worshipers of Baal. So he brought out garments for them. Jehu went into the house of Baal with Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, and he said to the worshipers of Baal, search and see that there is here with you none of the servants of the Lord, but only the worshipers of Baal. Then they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had stationed for himself 80 men outside, and he had said, the one who permits any of the men whom I bring into your hands to escape shall give up his life in exchange. Then it came about, as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, that Jehu said to the guard and the royal officers, Go in, kill them, let none come out. And they killed them with the edge of the sword. And the guard and the royal officers threw them out and went to the inner room of the house of Baal. They brought out the sacred pillars of the house of Baal and burned them. They also broke down the sacred pillar of Baal and broke down the house of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. Thus Jehu eradicated Baal out of Israel. However, as for the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin, from these Jehu did not depart. Even the golden calves that were at Bethel and that were at Dan. The Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in executing what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel sin. In those days, the Lord began to cut off portions from Israel, and Hazael defeated them throughout the territory of Israel. From the Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, the Gadites and the Reubenites and the Manassites, from Aror, which is by the valley of Arnon, even Gilead and Bashan. Now the rest of the acts of Jehu and all that he did and all his might Are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jehu slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. And Jehoahaz, his son, became king in his place. Now the time which Jehu reigned over Israel in Samaria was twenty-eight years. The word of God does not hold back in telling the truth. Again, shocking and profound. We'll jump right into it as we have a lot to cover today. We see a picture of what Jehu called his zeal for the Lord. He had this zeal for the Lord and for the purity of Israel to a degree, as you noted at the end. But it it begins here in verse 18 when he gathered all the people. And and he said to them, you thought, Jay, you thought um, Ahab served Baal, I'm going to serve him even more. 
get everybody together, uh, all the prophets, all the worshipers, all his priests, let nobody missing, for I am going to do something amazing. I'm going to give this great sacrifice for Baal, and whoever's not there will be killed. But Jehu did it in this cunningness so that he might destroy the house of Baal. Now, he had already killed so many people in Samaria, but this call went out all over Israel. All over Israel. He not only destroyed Ahab's house, but he wanted to destroy Ahab's religion. Did you notice the word that you heard repeated most in this section? Or maybe a hint, which character was named the most? Baal. 17 times in verses 18 through the end, 17 times we read Baal, Baal, and uh, six times his worshippers. So that obviously is the central focus of this section. God's destruction by the hand of Jehu of the house of Baal and his worshippers. And did you notice the thoroughness All the people, all his worshipers, all his priests, all the prophets. He called everybody. And by the way, we're going to see this a lot. This religion of Baal was very organized. They had prophets, they had priests, they had worshipers. They even made sacrifices. They had a thoroughgoing liturgy. Very religious in a sense. Now, we noted that Jehu had this plan to to kill the enemies of God, and he did it with cunning. It's the only time this word is used in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word, and it may be translated entrapment or deceitfulness or even deception or trickery. He did whatever it took to get them together, and you can chew on that. Uh, there's, there's debate about it, but he did it in cunning. He had a plan to get the enemies of God within Israel and kill them by any means possible. He had a plan to deal a decisive blow to Baal worship in Israel. And we're going to have an introduction, just a reminder of Baal and and his worship. But just in general, and as we begin our lessons today, learn this and be reminded, biblical religion has always been exclusive. It's always been exclusive. God said, I am the Lord and there is no other. Isaiah 45.5 You cannot have Yahweh and another God. He will not allow it. And Jesus, when he prayed in John 17, said, This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So we do not allow biblically a mixture of Christianity and any other religion. It's been that way from the beginning. You cannot be half Christian and half Muslim, or half Christian and half Buddhist. You cannot mix religions, if you will. Biblical religion, biblical followers of God, see that it's an exclusive relationship. And that's why God is so angry. He demanded their worship. He would not allow there to be a mixture. We have even the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment, no graven images. And all through the history of Israel, 
from so early on, idolatry and false religion was a temptation. Israel wanted to follow Baal and Yahweh. They thought they could do it. They thought they could have this mixture, or even the calves, which will hit at the end of the chapter. They wanted to have a little bit of both. Now, we wouldn't do that, would we? We wouldn't have a little bit of God and a little bit of something else. Yes, we would. And we are challenged and we are rebuked that God says, that's mine, that part of your life is mine. We've heard that quote uh, from Tom and, and others many times. God requires 100% allegiance. He will not share His throne with another. That's very clear from the Scripture. And this event reveals how serious God takes when another is set up next to Him or above Him or even below Him but in the same sphere of our God. Baal, Baal, 17 times. These were the people of God who were carried away in idolatry, worshiping another God. Now, Baal means literally master or possessor. It's used of husband. It was even used in in some way to refer to God. It was that type of word. Um, It was used of towns and peoples unrelated necessarily to Baal worship, so it could get a little confusing. Even uh, Jonathan, Saul's son, named his son Merib Baal. The Lord contends, but then they changed his name to Mephibosheth, one who destroys shame. So there's some question, did they, you know, over time they realize we don't even want to use that name, Baal. You can imagine how that would happen for towns or even in a, in a good sense it was used, but then they said, no, I really don't want to name my son that. It's interesting, and of course, John has taught us about Baal Zebub, master or lord of the flies, the Philistine god, which we hear referenced in the New Testament. So, Baal in different contexts could mean different things, but the root meaning is master or possessor, lord. Most commonly, Baal referred to Hadad, the storm god. And the Greeks would would call that Thor. But Baal at Mount Carmel was thought to be this god, Melkart, the god of Tyre. And throughout the Old Testament, if you do a little search, you'll find that Baal's plural is used many times uh, from, from from throughout the whole Old Testament. Baal's plural. So there were many gods, Baal's gods with a small g. And they were often associated with nature, the sun, the moon, water, which were really critical to these tribes. They needed water, of course. There were famines. They needed sun, but not too much. And, and those Baals were often involved with conflicts with other gods dealing with fertility and death. And was fertility an important thing to the Israelites? Absolutely. They needed sons to keep the name going. And of course, death. They, they knew that death had to be dealt with. So as you think, why would the Israelites go to these gods? Well, there's some hints as you think about Baal and what he meant in different contexts. Again, the sun, water, rain, fertility, death. They had an interest in those things, humanly, but we need the true God to give us those things. Maybe that's why they ran to him for help, because there was a famine. Maybe it was a drought. The the crops were not growing. Too much sun, not enough sun. Too much water, not enough water. They were desperate, so they ran to another God. 
extra biblical documents uh, point to the fact that these Baals were had maybe their queens or their consorts, Asherah and Ashtaroth, which often they went to the Baals and the Asherah together, the male and female deities. You'll see that throughout these historical books. Baal worship, even though it's going to be destroyed, in quotes, here, yet kept a foothold in Judah. And we noted that Jehu killed Azariah, the king of Judah, and of course, Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab, brought in Baal worship. Well, that worship would continue for a hundred years plus. And we find that in the latter chapters uh, of Second Kings 17 and 21, even Ahaz and Manasseh, they were worshiping Baal and even gave their sons to be burned to Baal. So Baal worship was eradicated from Israel, yet it continued in Judah by this wicked woman, Athaliah, which our next chapter is about. She will become the queen of Judah. So sin was not dealt with. It crept into Israel, and then it crept into Judah as well for hundreds of years, 150 years later. Well, that's just a review of Baalism, if you will. Verse 20, Jehu's plan. He says in verse 20, Sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal. Hear the religious tones. It's, it's a solemn assembly. It sounds like what they would say about Yahweh. A solemn assembly. And they proclaimed it. They sent out the word. He sent throughout Israel and all the worshipers of Baal came so that there was not a man left who didn't come. They wanted to show up lest they be killed and they wanted to worship their God. And when they went they went into the house of Baal, the house of Baal was filled from one end to the other. The special service was called. They summoned everybody. And when you th- look at the map of Israel, they went a 100 miles north and a 100 miles south. It would have taken uh, 10 plus days, weeks for these people to show up. So there was time to allow the, the Baal pilgrims to show up to come to this special worship service. And boy, did they show up. It was packed. It was a huge facility, the place of worship. Remember how many prophets it said that Ahab and Jezebel had supported back in 1 Kings? 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. It was a massive religion. It wasn't just a few prophets, one or two false prophets. Looking back to that point, there were 450 and many more worshipers. So this facility must have been massive to allow this many people to come in and to gather around it. It was the majority religion. God had His people, yet the majority appeared to be Baal worshipers. Everybody's doing it. That's what they could have said. Everybody's doing it. I need to go to. I need to worship Baal. I need my daughter to get pregnant. I need water for the crops. I need someone to rescue me from death. Baal offers all that. And boy, the worship service is amazing. I was reading Psalm 81 this week. Listen to the warning from God. Hear, O my people, and I will admonish you, O Israel. If you would listen to me, 
Let there be no strange God among you, nor shall you worship any other foreign God. I, the Lord, am your God. The Israelites, from the beginning, or early on at least, were stumbling and falling into the worship of other gods. When God said, no, you're only to worship me. I am your God. Well, this was no ordinary worship service. Verse 22 Jehu said to the one who was in charge of the wardrobe, bring out the garments for all the worshipers of Baal. So he brought out the garments for them. They must have been drawn into the moment that people must have been so excited lining up, coming to worship Baal to see this great sacrifice, to see what was going to happen. And, and one author, I don't know why, but he said these garments were likely white or red. I thought red might make sense or white to see what's going to come out from under the white. Uh, soon, but they were given all of these garments. It was a very uh, liturgical service. They they had all these garments. How many uh, pairs of garments? Thousands? We don't know. Hundreds? Who was given? But it says for all the worshippers of Baal. Maybe they just hung it over their shoulders. We don't really know. But they were getting ready. They were putting on these special garments for worship. I praise the Lord. We don't need garments for worship. Lesson two, false religion is deceptive and deadly. Deceptive because they had this beautiful garb that was attractive, but it was cursed. To put on the garments of Baal showed your allegiance to him. False religion was deceptive. It it seemed good to pray to a God who might deliver you from death or might give you crops or might give you babies because you wanted to get pregnant. It had all this, this beautiful worship, and everybody was there, and everybody was getting their garments on, but it was deceptive. And it would be deadly to them. They think they're going into a worship service, they're going to a funeral service. False religion may be ornate and appealing, but it's false. We must see things through the lens of Scripture. And you might be thinking, well, I wouldn't do that. We'll get there in a moment. Well, actually, just listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians. Speaking of similar events. 1 Corinthians 10, 6, and 7. Now, these things happened. Why? These types of idolatrous events with punishments as examples for us. 2 Kings 10, brothers and sisters, is an example to us. So that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Other gods, other outlets, other places of refuge. Paul told the Corinthians, do not be idolaters as some of them were. So we can say the same thing and we can warn ourselves that false religion in all its forms, and I don't just mean the organized false religion, I mean those idols that we will deal with in our own hearts. We have to beware. We have to watch out. Verse 23. Jehu went into the house of Baal with Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, the guy that he picked up earlier in the chapter. And he said to the worshipers of Baal, Search and see that there is here with you none of the servants of the Lord, but only the worshipers of Baal. He was giving his pre-lecture, or whatever you want to call it, and he said, Make sure there's no 
followers of Yahweh in here, and ultimately in God's providence, it was to protect and make sure that there was actually no true ones, no true worshipers of God. They were all idolaters, which were to be dealt with swiftly. Verse 24, they went in. And verse 25 says, Jehu is is the one. They went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had stationed for himself 80 men outside, and he said, the one who permits any man whom I bring in into your hands to escape shall give up his life in exchange. He threatened once again. He was loaded with threats. He was a violent, bloody man. If anyone escapes, you will be killed. He told those guards, you have to kill everybody, and if anyone gets by your sword, I will have you killed. We see more of the character, maybe the curiosity of Jehu, maybe some of his ungodliness. Verse 25, then it came about, as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, that Jehu said to the guard and the royal officers, go in, kill them, let none come out. And they killed them with the edge of the sword. And the guard and the royal officers threw them out, the bodies. And then they went to the inner room of the house of Baal. God was provoked to such jealousy that he had Jehu and his men execute judgment on his own people for their worship of Baal. To the degree that they killed them in their own place of worship and then threw out the bodies one after another, after another, after another. The blood was flowing, and if they were wearing those white garments, they were all stained with blood. God's wrath was being poured out on Israel at the hand of Jehu. Violent judgment. They went into this inner room. Again, the the high level, the organization of Baal worship they had sort of like a holy of holies. Maybe they were copying. We don't know, but they had this inner room, this special place, and they went in there. If you see the idols in your own heart, we must run to Christ. The only place where wrath can be appeased, where wrath can be propitiated. Christ on the cross. These chapters if you're unsaved, run to Christ to, so that the wrath of God will be soaked up and you don't have to bear it in hell. These snapshots in the Old Testament of God's wrath, we don't see to the degree such things generally in the New Testament, but we see them in the future in the Revelation. As we mentioned last week when the people said, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. These chapters reveal the wrath of God and that He is a jealous God and He says, I am the Lord their God, your God, and there is no other. Well, they not only killed the people, but verse 26, they brought out the sacred pillars, plural, of the house of Baal and they burned them. These wooden like totem pole uh, uh, representatives of their gods maybe carved into the shape of such and such of a god. You can look up some pictures of those things. They also broke down the sacred pillar of Baal. Apparently there was one 
idol that was so special. It was the, the, the main pillar that they would worship and offer sacrifice to and bow down to and trust in. They took that pillar and broke it down as well. And then they broke down the entire house of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. Sacred pillars, the sacred pillar, destroyed with fire, which Baal, often dealing with nature and, and, and fire, and even he called for to have the, the children sacrificed by, in the fire. Yet he, his, his uh, statues and his pillars are burned with fire themselves. Ironic. They think they're the God of fire and God burns them with fire. They burned all the sacred stuff and broke down the entire house, permanently denigrating it by turning it into a latrine. This word's only once in the Bible. We're probably glad about that. One time in the Old Testament, and it's a cesspool. It's the place of dung. That's what God thinks of false religion and idolatrous worship. It's a place of dung. For us, anything but the true worship of God, any other worship is the same. Dung, it's useless, it's meaningless, it's empty, it's to be destroyed. Lesson three, brothers and sisters, let us guard our hearts from idols. We must guard our hearts from idols. Because the psalmist said, those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. They trusted in Baal to get more babies, to get more food, to have their their issues with death dealt with. They trusted in this dead totem pole that could do nothing. And they became like him, dead, useless, as dung on the ground. That's what idolatry does. It destroys people, and but for the grace of God, it would destroy us. And even those remaining idols, and Calvin said the heart is an idol factory. One of the hymns we sing, number one in our hymnal, uh, Sing Praise to God, there's a, there's a verse missing, and I, I love the line, All idols underfoot be trod. The Lord is God. The Lord is God. We must, we're not the iconoclasts who go destroy the, the, the false religions around us and knock down their buildings, we deal with idolatry within our own hearts. We must repent of our wrongs, our sins, and eradicate them from ourselves. What do you trust in? Where do you run? Where do I run to? What are our primary thoughts in life about? What gets us really excited? Is it that we are the brothers of Christ? As Tom exhorted us last week. What gets our primary affections in this world? Is it sports? I know there's a, there's, the World Cup was this morning. I have no clue about it. But I heard an interview with a guy and he lives for the World Cup. He knows everything about the World Cup. He follows the World Cup all year long and all that's going on and all the developments and all the possibilities. He follows the religion of that sport. Playing soccer's not wrong. Having a World Cup's not wrong in and of itself. But that, and for many Americans, is their religion. 
What about our cell phones as we've been exhorted? I was telling my mother-in-law here that when we went to the camp, we had no cell service. And boy, it was such a blessing to not even have that phone to look at. Do we look at our phones more than we pray to God? Do we look at our phones more than we read the scripture? In moments, it can, a phone, a stupid phone can become an idol. It can get too much of our attention. What about your spouses? A spouse can become an idol. What about your children? They can become idols. We can love them more than God. Fill in the blank. Is it your hobby? Is it your vacation? For me, that's a temptation. I love to go on vacation. It's not wrong to go on vacation. It's not wrong to go to Hawaii and enjoy the beauty of God's creation. But when my thoughts are on that continuously, and I think that when if I can just go on vacation, everything will be right. No. God can bless that. But that is not my God. That's not my refuge. Is it your work? Is it your bank account? And and all of these things that we just mentioned, they're not bad, but they could be enjoyed to the glory of God. But what about sinful things? Sinful things can become obviously idols as well. That's why we have this remaining sin that is a mini idol factory that promotes and, and pushes us to run to somewhere else. If I get stressed out and I get depressed, do I run to the pantry to get food and eat? Or do I run to my prayer closet and fall down before my God? What is your, What are your idols that are competing and saying, come over here and find some rest? Again, God gives us these beautiful things, beautiful meal to His glory and we thank Him for it. But what are the things that might be replacing Him in your life? Or getting too much attention? You shall have no other gods before me. And it's not only the prohibition, don't have an, another God, don't do this, don't do that, but it's, I am your God. And I, I came across Keech's catechism. Benjamin Keech, one of the men that signed our 1689 confession, a, a great preacher in many ways, he, he wrote a catechism, and the first question is, who is the first and best of beings? God is the first and best of beings. It's not only don't have other gods, but worship the true God. Give Him your passion, your love. Run to Him as your primary refuge, your delight. Delight in God. So it's yes, don't do it, but it's also come to Him. And even when He rebuked them in in Psalm 81, don't have other gods. I am your God. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. I will bless you. So there's the negative, don't do it, but also positively do this, come to me, I'll give you all that you need. Delight in God, so that that's how you really turn away from idols, by worshiping and walking with your God. Well, verse 28, 29, 30, and 31 may be having this uh, positive description of Jehu, and then a negative description. A positive description, and then a negative description. Description. See how it works. Verse 28, positively, thus Jehu eradicated or maybe eliminated or exterminated Baal out of Israel. He was God's sword, God's scourge on Israel, and he eradicated Baal out of Israel. He cleaned house. He had a bloody reformation and removed Baal and all the priests and all the prophets and all the worshipers from Israel. This is a commendation. This is something he did good. Verse 29. However. However. 
as for the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. From these, Jehu did not depart. Even the golden calves that were at Bethel and then were at Dan. He did such a great job in wiping out Ahab, his whole house, and Baal worship in Israel, but he stopped short of a complete reformation as many other kings in Israel did the same thing. They would do something good, but they did a lot bad. And again, do we find ourselves fervent for the Lord, worshiping worshiping Him here today, and then maybe this afternoon we find ourselves becoming an idol. We're driving home and we're driving as if furiously, get out of my way, the road belongs to me, or in our homes as, we, as we've been rebuked men, are we the Lord of our home, are we the God of the house? No, we can make idols, we, we did one thing good, However, we didn't deal with that. Jeroboam had set up those golden calves a hundred years earlier. And Jehu was still clinging to them. Lesson four. Beware of eradicating the sins in society rather than the sins in self. Beware of eradicating the sins in society rather than the sins in self. Maybe not the best grammar, but you get the point. You may go heresy hunting, yet tolerate your own pet sins. You can, we can get so focused on maybe something secondary, tertiary, or not even a sin, legalism, fundamentalism, so focused on, uh, is my hair short enough? Is my, is my skirt too short? too long when we miss the main point we miss the sins within I've told you the story before I went to a Christian school and they told us it was the Bob Jones style back in the 70s and 80s and you were not allowed to walk down the street on the side of the street as a movie theater because someone may think you went in and that's a laughable story. One time I, I got sent home from school because I wore a shirt that looked like something Elvis Presley might wear. That's legalism. And it's laughable, but we can do the same thing. We can want to deal with so-called sins or even real sins in society, but totally miss the sins within. We've seen people do it. They've been preaching and preaching against such and such, and they might fall into the same sin or worse. So if we're more zealous for dealing with the heresies and the errors without than within, we've got big trouble. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he does not fall. If you want to destroy idols, start with yourself. Guard your hearts from idols. And these idols, even though Baal was dealt with, these calves would continue the Asherah, the totem poles, the worshiping of the host of heaven. Those sins continue to such a degree uh, for maybe looking at the dates, if you still have your, your sheet, Jehu started around 842. Within a hundred years, the entire kingdom of Israel, the, the northern kingdom headed in Samaria would be destroyed by God, carried away in exile, brought to nothing because of their idolatry, because of these calves in their own house. 
They got rid of Baal, but they still had the golden calves. And that's why I put on the chart the fall of Samaria, 722 B.C. It went extinct, and we'll see it at the end of this section. God starts to cut away Israel because of their idolatry. Because they didn't have a clean house. They left a few of the idols. We can't leave a few idols in our hearts. You can read about that in 2 Kings 17. Verse 30. So we we started with the positive. He eradicated Baal, verse 29. But he didn't get rid of the golden calves. Verse 30, the positive, the the middle of this uh, rebuke sandwich, if you will, we find a blessing. God's grace, we find this blessing. Verse 30, the Lord said to Jehu, we just heard he didn't depart from the gold calves, but the Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in executing what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. I wrote in my notes, wow. I mean, he just said that he allowed the golden cat. He not only allowed it, he, he apparently worshipped them. Yet God blessed even partial obedience. And Jehu was God's sword. Lesson five, God uses people with many wrongs to accomplish what is right. We see his sovereignty that he could use such a one as Jehu to accomplish his purposes, even though he was yet an idolater, not of Baal, but of the golden calves. Yet we see God's grace that he can use cracked vessels to accomplish good. And he he even says, I've seen it with my eyes, and it was accomplishing all that was in my heart. Jehu, this man who was furious, who killed violently, and, and again, you can look at his life and some have said he went way too far. He did way more than God told him to. Yet God commends him particularly for what he did in destroying Ahab's house. He was anointed to strike the house of Ahab, which he did very well. He executed God's task. He was the avenger of God. And he pleased God. You can read Hosea 1 where God rebukes the house of Jehu because he had too much bloodletting. Yet he is blessed, and the blessing is, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. Again, it's on your chart if you still have it. You can see below Jehu, his four sons, Jehoahaz, Jehoash, Jeroboam II, and Zechariah. They were his four sons, the lineage, if you will, um, uh, for 100 years. 100 years, his sons would be on the throne. God blessed in this way that his sons would yet be on the throne. God's sovereignty and God's kindness are amazing. There's a lot more here. Verse 31. But Jehu, this is the negative. So we had the positive, the negative, the positive, and now the negative, verse 31. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel sin. Focus on this phrase, he was not careful. 
He took no heed. He paid no attention. He didn't keep the law of God. He didn't watch out to keep the law of God. He didn't observe the law of God carefully. He drifted, as we've been warned. He drifted. He thought he was going the right direction. He was all in against Baal, and he destroyed the house of Ahab and the house of Baal. He thought everything was great, but somehow he had drifted and was still bowing to the golden calves, which would lead to the destruction of the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom. He had huge blind spots, but Jehu was not careful. God just said, I'm going to bless you. Your four sons will be kings, but he was not careful. Lesson six, in the words of Paul to the Ephesians 5.15, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. Be careful. We've heard messages on this at church camp years back. Be careful how you walk. Not as unwise men, as Jehu, but as wise. Beware of destroying one sin only to delight in another. And maybe you've seen it in your own life. Often we trade one sin for another. We have victory over one sin, but then we fall into another. We have to be careful how we walk. We cannot live on yesterday's victories. God may have given you great victory over a sin. Praise Him. Rejoice. But there's more to be done. Be careful. The enemy is still advancing. The world, the flesh, and the devil. We must be careful how we walk. And Lord, show me my blind spots. Maybe ask your spouse or your children, what what sins do I have? We all have them. Examine yourself. We do it before the Lord's Supper. What are some sins, Lord, that I'm not being careful about? Do I have any golden calves, as it were, that I need to deal with? Do I play video games too much? Do I have too much time on my hobby? Do I watch more football than I do read the scripture? Do I speak kindly to my wife, my children? Am I an honest worker to my employer? When I'm singing your hymns, is my mind all in? When I hear the sermon, do I take it and examine my heart or do I criticize the speaker? Fill in the blank. There are many things we're not careful about, but we need to be. Be careful how you walk. Don't be like Jehu, who had some great success in one area, but neglected chapters of his life. And it's interesting. It says at the end that he was king for 28 years. And how much do we know about him? Relatively little. What did he do all those other 27 years? Apparently, he worshipped and served these idols rather than the true God. He didn't follow God carefully for those 28 years. What about us? Did we have a victory? We, we did something good for the Lord. What about next year? What about the year after that? Are we going to persevere and move forward by being careful to observe the law of God? Verse 32 and 33 Israel had one step forward, yet two steps back. In those days, they just had this great reformation, getting rid of Baal. But in those days, the Lord began to cut off portions from Israel. And Hazael defeated or smote them throughout the territory of Israel. 
from the Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, the Gadites and the Reubenites and the Manassites from Aror, which is by the valley of Arnon, even Gilead and Bashan. The Lord not only punished the house of Ahab and the Baalites by the hand of Jehu, but the Lord punished Israel by the hand of Hazael, who was anointed and called by God to punish Israel. It's ironic. Even the same word is used. Jehu smote the prophets of Baal, and yet God smote Israel by Hazael. Remember, Elisha wept over that prophecy in chapter 8, 11. He wept because he knew Hazael was going to devastate and burn and kill the women and rip the children out of their wombs. He was a violent aggressor and would attack Israel and do great damage. Why? All because they did not repent of their idolatry. They were not all in for the Lord. They were not careful how they walked. They kept going back to the golden calves. So God starts chopping up Israel. If you have your 12 tribes of Israel map in the back of your Bible, you can see the Jordan running. It's from north to south or south to north, however you want to say it. God was cutting off these portions from the Jordan east, going toward the deserts, all the land of Gilead. You can see Ramoth Gilead, Jaboth, Jabesh Gilead, east of the Jordan. You can see uh, the Gadites, which are east of the Jordans, above Reuben. You can see the Reubenites just south of Gad. Uh, you can see the valley of Arnon, the Arnon River. It's the southern border of Reuben. Gilead, again, that area north of that. And all the way up to Bashan, which is north and north, what, what's called East Manasseh, all the way up toward Mount Hermon and Aram. God, that whole region from north to south, east of the Jordan, was being cut off. God was carving up Israel for their disobedience. And again, within a hundred years, Israel would be totally dismantled. Samaria would be totally destroyed and there would be no more kings of Israel. Judah continued for quite a, for almost 150 years. But Israel would be dismantled completely, partly because of what we've read about in these judgments. Devastating. God smote the Baal worshippers and then he smote his own people. He smote the smiter. It was Jehu and his sons, the kings, who were attacked by Hazael. Verse 34, Now the rest of the acts of Jehu and all that he did and all his might, are they not written in the books, book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? We don't have that book. Our chronicles, first chronicles, deals with David. Second Chronicles deal with Solomon and the kings of Judah. Apparently, this is mentioned a few times in the Bible, we, we don't have its loss, that history of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. We have the Chronicles of the kings of Judah, but we do not have the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. That was the history record they had. Jehu slept with his fathers, he died. They buried him in Samaria, and Jehoahaz, 
his son became king in his place. In verse 36, as we conclude, now the time which Jehu reigned over Israel in Samaria was 28 years, thus completing this section, these two whole chapters about Jehu, the avenger of God. Ironically, he didn't kill one of the people of Ahab, and that is Ahab's daughter, Athaliah, and that's how chapter 11 begins, when Athaliah. So it's interesting. It didn't mention, he killed the sons, the men, primarily, um, but maybe he should have kept going because she is going to wreak havoc in the among the people of Judah. Well, we went long. Let's conclude with prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We are sobered. Lord, it is a challenge to guard our hearts from idols. Father, help us to trod them underfoot, our own, Lord. May we have this careful obedience. May we deal with our own sins. May we learn the lessons of your word, even from Jehu and how Israel was carried away for hundreds of years in Baal worship. Lord, you are a jealous God, and yet, Lord, you call us to delight ourselves in you, to worship you, to have no other gods. And Father, we confess at times we run to other places and not you. We confess, Lord, sometimes we love other things more than you. Lord, forgive us for idolatry. Forgive us, Lord, and may we find you to be our chief delight. And we do, Lord. Father, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. May we learn the warnings of Second Kings. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.